So if I haven't met you before, my name is Travis Lowe. I serve on staff here at the church as our teaching pastor. And in addition to that, my wife, Mickey, and I, who serves as a worship arts coordinator, are preparing to plant a church in the city of Tampa in the spring. And in addition to that, we are preparing to welcome our first child in two to three weeks. So life's busy. Uh, Life is busy in the low home, but I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to spend some time with you this morning as we walk together through God's word. If you've got a Bible, you can turn in it to the gospel according to Matthew chapter 5 will be in verses 7 and 8. And if you've been with us, then you know that we are walking through a particular portion of the gospel, according to Matthew, known as the Sermon on the Mount, and an even smaller portion of the Sermon on the Mount, known as the Beatitudes. This is an incredibly famous portion of Scripture, and it's famous beyond the bounds of Christianity. When you begin to study the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that commentators pretty much unanimously mention is that there have been countless non-Christians who have come to the Sermon on the Mount and realized that what Jesus is teaching here is revolutionary. Perhaps one of the most famous, a name you would recognize, is Gandhi, uh, the great political activist, uh, somebody who was by no means a Christian, but who was infatuated with the Sermon on the Mount. Spent a great deal of time thinking about it believing that there was something important in this text. Certainly not somebody who had repented and believed the gospel, but he couldn't shake the Sermon on the Mount. So clearly, there is something going on in this portion of Scripture that requires our attention. If even people who don't believe in Jesus look at this sermon from Jesus and say, I'm, ha- I'm going to have to take some time to think about it, we as Christians, people who do believe the gospel, should give our attention to it should think about it carefully. And what we'll find as we consider this portion of scripture is there's actually more going on than maybe what we initially believe. Take, for example, the location of the sermon. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And maybe you've heard that in Sunday school, maybe you've heard that in church your whole life, and you've never really thought, why is it a sermon on a mount? In fact, in Luke's gospel, Jesus preaches a similar sermon, but it's called the Sermon on the Plain. I had a professor when I was at the University of South Florida say, this was probably Jesus' silver bullet sermon. So I'm going to let you in on a little pastoral secret. Um, Sometimes I preach the same message more than once. Uh, Mark even said he's, he's taught this particular series probably four or five years ago. Well, because we have one book that we're working out of, and that book doesn't change. And every once in a while, we come back around again. Or uh, it might be that I preach here on Sunday this sermon, and then a couple weeks from now, if my brother Richard invites me to speak at the chapel, I'm going to preach this same sermon over there. Why? Because they haven't heard it yet. And Jesus most likely does the same thing in his public ministry. The Sermon on the Mount is probably Jesus' silver bullet sermon. And in a world before podcasts and videos, Jesus has to preach it in multiple places so that everybody can hear it. So Jesus preaches this sermon on a plane in Luke's gospel, but in Matthew's gospel, he preaches it on the mount. And Matthew emphasizes that really, really clearly. Jesus took his disciples up the mountain and there he began to teach them. And there's actually a reason for that. There's a reason why Jesus preaches this specifically from a mount in Matthew's gospel. It would have called to mind all sorts of national traditions for the original Jewish listeners. 
because they have a long history of things like this taking place on mountains. To kind of draw a parallel into our modern culture, it would sort of conjure images like if Matthew were to say, Jesus, while crossing the Delaware, preached this sermon. Right, you would begin to think, well, Washington crossed the Delaware during the War for Independence, and so Jesus must be sort of commenting on something like that. Or Jesus preached this sermon on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, which would call to mind Dr. King's great I Have a Dream speech in the battle for civil rights. Or Jesus preached this sermon in the foothills of Mount Rushmore. That would call to mind the towering faces of important figures in our national history. The, the point is that Jesus standing on the mountain preaching the sermon would have conjured something in the backs of the minds of his listeners. Because 1,400 years ago, another figure in Israel's history had ascended a mountain and had delivered laws and commandments, and his name was Moses. Moses had gone up Mount Sinai and from God had received the laws that would serve as the governing principles for the kingdom of Israel. We call them now the Ten Commandments. And they go, hang on a second. This guy just climbed up a mountain and he started giving us laws. That's what Moses did. Except Moses received the laws from God and Jesus speaks the laws on his own authority. On the mountain... Jesus assumes the role of both Moses and Yahweh himself. He is both Moses and he is the God to whom Moses prayed. And so Jesus speaks these commandments. He gives these laws. And just like the Ten Commandments were laws for how the kingdom of Israel should be governed, the Sermon on the Mount we might call the laws of the kingdom of God. This is the the constitution of God's people. This is how we as the church are meant to conduct ourselves as we are citizens of the kingdom of God on earth. Jesus is also building a culture in the Sermon on the Mount. The great Anglican theologian John Stott, who's one of my favorite figures in the last 50 years of church history, uh, once called the Sermon on the Mount the, the counterculture of the kingdom of God. And maybe you grew up in the 60s and the 70s, the era of the, the hippie movement and the counterculture. Maybe you were a hippie and you were part of the counterculture. I'm going to be honest, well before my time, and also I don't think the Beatles are that good. But I understand. <laughs> I just lost the room. That's awesome. <laughs> but I understand that that was an important part in our nation's history. And what was happening in the counterculture movement? You had a generation of younger people who were looking at the way that the world was run, and they said, this is not how things should be. The way that the world is governed, the way that society is, is not how it ought to be. And so we are building a culture within a culture to challenge the status quo. And I think that's a helpful way of thinking about the ethic Jesus lays out in the Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount. He is building a culture to counter the culture. And that helps us make sense of why so many of the Beatitudes don't seem to make sense of the world that we live in. Like, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Well, that doesn't seem to be how things work. It seems like the the go-getters and the people who are assertive, they're the ones that are inheriting the earth. So why is Jesus saying that the meek will inherit the earth? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It seems like the, the humble and the poor in spirit are the people who are constantly being trampled on, not the ones receiving a kingdom. 
The Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, represent the constitution of the kingdom of God, the counterculture of the kingdom of Jesus. And we have to realize that at this point in our fallen world, it's not how things work. The meek don't seem to inherit the earth. The poor in spirit don't seem to receive a kingdom. In some sense, it's not how the world works. And yet, the world doesn't work like it should. And the kingdoms of this world will one day be the kingdom of our God. And so the Sermon on the Mount paints a picture for us of how the church should operate and how the world will be when Jesus comes again in glory. And you can see this sort of countercultural impulse, I think, really clearly in the passage that we're going to be spending our time in this morning. It comes to us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus first begins by declaring that people who are merciful are blessed because they in turn will receive mercy. And I think that begs the question, what is mercy? What sort of mercy is Jesus after? Unfortunately, a little bit later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus offers a parable that I think paints a picture of what he desires to uh, be at work in the hearts of his people, what Jesus' view of mercy looks like. You find it in Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 through 30. Jesus tells this parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all he had and a payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave his debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay his debt. And then we get to verses 32 and 33. It says, then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all your debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. So here's the picture of what's going on in Jesus's parable. In the ancient world, if somebody was in debt, there were a couple ways that they could alleviate that debt. None of them were particularly kind. One option is that you could sell yourself and your family into slavery and you would work as a slave until you had produced enough income to pay your debts off and essentially purchase back your freedom. Another option, which you see in the text, is that you would just be thrown into prison until you could pay your debts, which doesn't work very well because you can't work from prison, and so you essentially never pay off your debts. And so Jesus paints this picture of a, of a man, a, a king, who is owed a great deal of money, and a servant comes to him and pleads for mercy, and the king, because he is merciful, absolves the man of his debts, even though legally he has no responsibility to do that. And the same man goes and he seeks someone else who owes him money, and he collects on his debts. He lacks mercy. And so based on this parable, I think we can basically come to this definition of mercy. Mercy is showing kindness to someone even when they don't deserve it, and especially when it's within your right to exact punishment. And Jesus says, blessed are people who behave in that way, for they will receive 
mercy. But I think we have to admit that this is not the way that the world works. I'd venture to say a number of us in this room have credit cards. What would happen to the credit card industry if we injected mercy into the process? Like Capital One calls, says, listen, Travis, I know you owe whatever amount of money. Let's, let's go $10,000. I know you owe $10,000, but I've just read the Sermon on the Mount. And I would love to be merciful to you. So why don't we just call it even? Okay, if you're that Capital One employee, you're getting fired as soon as you hang up the phone. I know it's within our right to come and collect, but I'm going to be merciful today. That's not how the world works. I have a number of friends who are currently crushed beneath the weight of student loan debt. Maybe you're one of those people. I can tell you Sally Mae is not merciful. There is no mercy in that process. Think about the way that our culture works when somebody's past sins have come to light, the, the rampage that ensues on social media where we crucify people and attempt to destroy their lives. We are a merciless culture. We're merciless. And yet Jesus says that in a world that is merciless, Jesus doesn't bless those who delight in taking what's theirs or exacting revenge. He blesses those who show mercy. And yet, as we think about what it looks like to be merciful in our own lives, I think we have to admit, mercy is costly. It's painful. It doesn't come easily. And that's why it's so rare. One of the most uh, impactful videos I've seen in a long time comes from the 2003 sentencing of a man named Gary Ridgway. And maybe you don't recognize the name. You might recognize the title the media gave him, The Green River Killer. Gary Ridgway was one of the most prolific serial killers in American history. His number of victims is estimated between 40 women and 70, who he murdered by strangulation. His acts are horrifically evil. In fact, I would actually go so far as to describe what Ridgway did as demonic. But he got out of the death penalty by way of a plea deal. He agreed to lead prosecutors to the remains of his victims so that the families could have closure in exchange for sparing his life and only receiving a life sentence. And so, at his sentencing, the families of Ridgeway's victims were invited to speak to him. And there's footage of this. You can find it on YouTube. One after one, the families of the victims expressed completely understandable anger at the horrific crimes that Ridgway committed. One woman said, you are an animal, and I hope you have a long and suffering, cruel death. Another said, you are going to hell, and that's where you belong. And throughout the sentencing, as one grieving family member after another faced Ridgway, he had no emotion on his face. He showed no sign of remorse. He seemed completely empty and void. Until a man named Robert Rule approached the microphone. Ridgway had murdered his daughter. And Rule spoke these words. He said, Mr. Ridgway, there are people here that hate you, but I am not one of them. You have made it difficult for me to live up to what I believe God says to do, which is to forgive. But you are forgiven, Mr. Ridgway. That was the first time that he showed emotion. Throughout the great majority of the trial, Ridgway broke down in tears. That is a costly act of mercy. 
I don't think there's any way to describe that other than costly. And yet Jesus calls us to costly mercy. But he calls us to that because we should know as Christians that the price of our mercy has already been paid for by Christ on the cross. If you think back to the parable, Jesus approaches mercy from two angles in Matthew's gospel. He says that the merciful will receive mercy, but then when you look at the parable, Jesus says those who have received mercy should in turn be merciful. And we as Christians believe that we have received the greatest of all mercies, that God has shown us mercy when we didn't deserve it by forgiving our sins in the gospel. And he calls us as his people who have received mercy to extend it to others even when they don't deserve it. And Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they have received mercy and they will receive mercy. And so it's worth asking Does this virtue mark your life? Would you consider yourself a merciful person? Or do you take what's owed to you? And you you don't have to think of it in as extreme examples of the the Gary Ridgway case or exorbitant debt or anything like that. You can simply ask the question, when your spouse wrongs you, do you forgive them or do you hold it over them in the hopes that they'll do what you want? When, when your child doesn't listen to you, is that something you levy against them or do you offer forgiveness maybe even when you don't feel like they have sufficiently earned it? That's what it looks like to be a merciful person, the sort of person that Jesus blesses. And if you would say that you're not merciful, then I would argue that you need to go and take a long, hard look at the cross and think about the mercy that you've received. Because God, being rich in mercy sent Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. Jesus goes on. He extends his blessing to those who are pure in heart. He says, blessed are the pure in heart because they will see God. One uh, New Testament scholar in his commentary on this passage, he, he says, this is kind of a strange thing to say in Jesus's culture. Because other rabbis who were operating in Jesus' day were pretty comfortable declaring God's blessing on external actions. So they would say, blessed is the person who keeps the law, who doesn't touch anything that's unclean, who obeys all of the, the rules in Leviticus. We can say God blesses that person. Or they would say, blessed is the one who studies the Torah. Blessed is the one who studies the, the scriptures. We can say that God will pronounce blessing on you. But these are all external actions. Jesus seems to bless people's internal realities rather than their external deeds. Blessed are the pure, not just in their external actions, but those who are pure in heart. And if you spent any time examining yourself, I think we we would all have to agree, it is infinitely harder to describe yourself as pure internally as opposed to externally. It's way harder to get control over what's going on in your heart than what you say with your mouth or what you do with your hands. Uh, I think I learned this the hard way in kindergarten. Uh, My parents were, uh, I mean, just they, they were and they are incredible people and they raised me well. I'm so grateful for their care, but they they gave me some rules in kindergarten because they wanted me to be kind to other people. So I was not allowed to use the word stupid I wasn't allowed to call anybody an idiot or call them dumb or anything like that. These were words that were off limits for Travis. And if Travis used these words, he couldn't watch Power Rangers for a week, which was a big deal in kindergarten. 
And so I, I, I remember being in kindergarten and thinking, okay, that's fine. I'm, I'm pretty good at, at holding my tongue. I won't say these words. But then I remember sitting at my desk and thinking, well, if saying the words are bad, then thinking the words are probably bad too. And then the same thing that's about to happen to you happened to me. When I say don't think about the word stupid, what just happened? You thought the word stupid. And then I got worried. I was like, well, I didn't say it, but I thought it. I'll just stop thinking it. Oh, no, I can't stop thinking it. I can't, I can't stop thinking the word stupid. And it would just cycle in my head. And I would look at my classmates and I'd be like, he's stupid. She's stupid. They're stupid. And, and I was like, but they're not stupid. I don't mean that. I can't. I can't and, I, and I couldn't stop. And so I did what any, I think, um, rule-following kindergartner would do. I went to my teacher and I said, who was a, a saint, by the way. I said, I'm so sorry. I keep thinking the word stupid. Please forgive me. And she looked at me and was like, did you call anyone that? And I said, no. And she goes, you're fine. Go sit down. And then it would spin, and it would spin, and it would spin, and it would spin. And I would get up and I would go, I can't stop thinking it. I can't stop thinking the word. I, I, I've, I've been trying, and I've been trying, and I've been trying, and I think the guy sitting next to me is stupid. But I don't really think that. I just can't stop. So uh, fun fact, it, like in the last three months, I've been diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. So all of that makes sense now, right? <laughs> um, but as a kindergartner, I, I felt the challenge of controlling not just what you say, but how you think. And when you hear Jesus' words, blessed are the pure in heart, if you don't feel the impossibility of that, then you're not thinking about it. It is impossible to keep your heart pure. It's so beyond our control, and in some ways, I think that's the point. The great Christian ethicist and theologian Stanley Hauerwas, in commenting on this passage, I think says it well. He says, you cannot live by the demands of the Sermon on the Mount, not on your own. But that's the point. The demands of the sermon are designed to make us depend on God and on one another. The Sermon on the Mount is the constitution of the kingdom of God. We need each other to live these commandments out, but more than that, we need Jesus himself. It's only Jesus who can grant us a pure heart. It's only Jesus who can renew our minds. It's only Jesus who can take our heart of flesh, our heart of stone, and make it a heart of flesh. And that's exactly what we're promised in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, verse 26. The prophet Ezekiel says, on behalf of the Lord, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. This is not something we can do on our own. But when we come to Christ, we begin the process of the Spirit making us pure in heart. People who don't simply do what is right, but who love what is good. As we are conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus makes a promise, and I wonder if you've considered this promise. He says, those who are pure in heart will see God. That's an astounding promise. There was an article I read a year or two ago, and I tried to find it as I was getting ready for this sermon, and I couldn't, I couldn't 
uncover it, but it was, um, it was exploring some of the changes that have happened to online seminary. In the last 25 to 30 years, seminaries, because a lot of people can't afford to move to the school, have offered online options, and it started pretty rudimentary. It started with them sort of mailing you a test and you on the honor system filling it out and mailing it back, and they would mail you cassette tapes and you would listen to the lectures, and then you would, on the honor system, say, hey, I listened to these lectures, and you would mail it back. But what they found is that people who underwent an education like this, they didn't gather all the information that somebody who sat in the classroom did. And so online school has become more and more and more advanced. It's also become more and more and more like actually sitting in a classroom. And one of the big changes that became necessary is they realized people can't just listen to their professor talk. People have to see their professor's face. They have to see the face of the one that they're teaching, the one that is training them. That's the only way that they can really retain this information. There seems to be something central to us as people about face-to-face contact. And Jesus makes this promise. If you are pure in heart, you will see God. I I wonder if we haven't shrunk the gospel We've, we've taken true realities about the gospel and we've made them central when in fact they're sort of just peripheral. So believe in Jesus because you won't go to hell when you die. Totally true. I affirm that 100%. But that's not the best news in the good news of the gospel. You know what the best news is? That if you believe in Jesus and the Spirit grants you a new heart, the God that you have known through prayer and through studying the Bible and through the fellowship of believers, the God that you have known from a distance, you will see face to face. That's the good news of the gospel. This event that has been impossible since the Garden of Eden is made possible by the gospel of Jesus. What does God say to Moses? When Moses says, Lord, let me see your glory, he says, you can't look on me and live. What does Jesus, the true and better Moses, say? If you are pure in heart, you will see God. It's the promise of our Lord. The hope of the gospel is that one day we will see God face to face, something that has been impossible since the garden, and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And it's not just Matthew that promises this. We see it in 1 John 3, 2. John says, beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be is not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. The same God who has shown us mercy and called us to mercy, the same God who has called us to live in his countercultural kingdom, the same God who grants us a pure heart, he will be there. We will see him as he is. That is the great hope. That is the great promise of this passage in the Sermon on the Mount. It is the promise of the Christian life that in a world marked by sin where it seems that the pure in heart don't receive any reward in the kingdom of God, they will see the face of God himself. And my prayer for you, Baylife, as you go out into the world this week, is that you would take Jesus at his word. 
that you would lead lives of mercy as a people who have received mercy. And that with the help of the Spirit, you would find your heart increasingly purified and conformed to the image of Jesus, longing for the day when you will see him face to face. Would you pray with me as we conclude our time together? Father in heaven, you are good, you're gracious, you're kind. And by your spirit, you grant us new hearts. Through the work of Jesus, you show us mercy. God, make us a people who are pure in heart and are merciful. And long for the day when these prayers from a distance give way to face-to-face conversation. Spirit, we can't do what Jesus has asked us to do in our own strength. And so we ask that you would strengthen us, make us merciful, purify our hearts, fill us with hope, teach us to walk in obedience to the words of Jesus our Lord. These things we ask in his name and we say amen. Baylife, go in peace. We'll see you next week. And if you're new, I'd love to meet you in the corner.